was a pretty epic intro video, huh? <laughs> Sign me up. I want to see that movie. Uh, all right, well, hey, uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nick. I'm the pastoral intern here at the, uh, at the Transit, and uh, we're going to dive into our series. If you were here last week, you saw that we, uh, were, we started a series on Genesis. We're looking at the life of Jacob, lessons of faith and grace. And uh, if you were here last week, Jeff kind of shared the, he called it the trailer or the preview, the opening scene of the life of Jacob. And if, if last week was the preview or the trailer, today is the opening scene. Like you're at the movie theaters, lights go down, projector turns on, and this is the opening scene uh, in the life of Jacob. And, and here's the deal. This is a, a heavy hitting opening scene. Heavy hitting opening scene in, in, in this regard. We have about six verses here today we're going to be looking at, and it's a, it's a small sliver of time, a, a brief moment in the life between two brothers, Jacob and Esau. But here's the deal. In that moment, in that meal that they shared together, their lives were forever changed in a small, small sliver of time. Two legacies, two legacies, two lifetimes were changed forever, one for the better and one for the far worse. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to do things a little bit differently. Uh, we're just going to kind of journey through this narrative together, go verse by verse, talk about it. And our series is called Lessons in Faith and Grace. So then we're going to, after we finish looking at this narrative, we're going to talk about some lessons uh, for us here today. So with that said, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your presence here this morning, both with us and in us, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you, would you speak today? Lord, would you increase? Would I decrease up here? Would you uh, uh, soften our hearts and our minds to what you have for us in your word? Your word is living and active, Father. And we know that in a moment, God, in a moment, in a morning, uh, here today, that you can change destinies, you can change legacies, you can change lives uh, for your glory, Father. So Holy Spirit, would you show up in power this morning, and we pray ultimately that you would increase in our lives and we would decrease. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, hey, before we uh, jump into the Jacob and Esau narrative, uh, we're going to hit the rewind button, and we're going to look at their grandfather, Abraham, a little bit, and we're going to look specifically at this aspect of Abraham's life. If you know the story, uh, Abraham was given a promise by God, and this promise, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, this promise was of a coming kingdom that was literally going to come through Abraham's offspring, through his body, through his lineage. This is what Abraham was promised. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, should be up on the screen. This is the Lord uh, calling Abraham. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this covenant promise given to Abraham is, is unpacked more in Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's three aspects to this promise that was given to Abraham. Abraham was promised, his promise the people, a land, and a blessing. So the Lord is saying, is Abraham, through you, through your body, you're going to have a great nation of people, as many as uh, uh, the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. And they're going to be God's people, and they're going to be a blessing 
to the nation. And then secondly, uh, Abraham was promised land. Abraham is commanded to leave his homeland and go to another land that God will show him the promised land. The promise here is that uh, Abraham, your descendants are going to be God's people in God's place. And then the last promise is they're going to be enjoying God's blessing, a.k.a. God's presence in their lives. So the last thing we see is people land. The third thing is blessing, that Abraham's descendants, his offspring, his lineage would be blessed not just for themselves, not just for the nation of Israel, but that blessing would bless the entire world, the entire nation. And we see uh, Scripture teaches us in the New Testament in Galatians 3, 16 and verse 29 that ultimately this promise is fulfilled in Christ. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, like we just talked about. It does not say and to, to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ, who is Jesus. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So how cool is that? Like we're, we're part of this promise. See, here's what's crazy, right? 4,000 years ago in a place that is thousands of miles away from us, I don't care if you're a believer here or not, this promise has come true. Like if you're here today, you're saying, I'm, I'm part of the nations that have been blessed through this promise that was given to Abraham 4,000 years ago. We're heirs according to this promise. Prophecy fulfilled, baby. Like, let's go. And so the reason I talk about this is this is a huge deal. This is huge, right? Like if God showed up in your life and was like, hey, through your body, through your son and his son and so on and so forth, a great people, a great nation, this nation of Israel is going to come. And through them, through your lineage, this Messiah is going to come. A God in the flesh, and he is literally for the rest of human history, going to reconcile people back to God. Amen. That is a huge deal. And the reason I, I, I hit the rewind button here is because where we're at in the story of Jacob and Esau, this covenant promise is, is, going, is traveling through Abraham. It's going to Isaac. And at this point in the narrative, it's passing to Esau. And so God was going to, when, when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, God reveals himself to Moses. I, I, if, if, if things, if we're just at this point in the narrative, God would have revealed himself to Moses as I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Esau. But that's not, that's not what scripture says. That's not what happened. And in six verses, we're going to see why. So let's dive into this text. Genesis 25, 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the fields and he was exhausted. So if, you're, if you were here last week, uh, Jeff did some, some character development for this narrative. And it's important for us to uh, go back and talk about that as well. So we're going to go back a couple of verses. And uh, we have two characters in this narrative. We have two brothers. They're twin brothers. One is Esau. One is Jacob. Esau is the older brother. Jacob's the younger. And this is how the Bible describes them. Tw uh, verses 27, 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau. That's Esau's father. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Right, you got twin brothers and parents showing a little bit of favoritism, but see Esau here, Esau here, uh, the way scripture uh, describes him, yo, he's a, he's a man's man. He's a skilled hunter, and, and, and early on in scripture, he's hairy too, so I don't know if that helps you get more of like a hunter image, but not as he's just a hunter, he's a, he's a skilled 
hunter. He's the, the man that, that all the other men wanted to be, and he's the man that all the other fellow, uh, I guess, Israelites, you know, the, the girls wanted to be with, and, and so on. You know how that saying goes, or whatever. And, uh, and, uh, and here's the deal. To put it in a modern context, Esau was the kind of guy you would see in line opening day at Cabela's. Like, this was just, dude, he was, he was uh, Tim Allen, arf, 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 you know, like, this is, this is Esau, all right? And uh, Jacob, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. And I think this is one of the most hilarious descriptions we have of someone in the Bible. And it's like, it's like two characteristics. So it says in, uh, in verse 28, you know, Jacob was a skilled hunter. He was a man's man, man of the field, while his younger brother, Jacob, was, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. That's all we're given. That's all we got. And uh, as I was reading this and preparing this message, I'm like, I'm like, Jacob, what in the world was there to do in tents 4,000 years ago? Like, if you're just doing, like, like, I don't know if you millennials know this, I'm a millennial, but anyways, like, there was no Wi-Fi in that tent 4,000 years ago. There was no Xbox 360. He couldn't, you know, go on Xbox Live and play Call of Duty with fellow Amalekites or, you know, whatever. He, uh, so what did he do? I think, I think he was more homeward in his orientation, and that's why he got along with his mom. We see in, the, in this story that he was, he was cooking, he was cleaning, and, and if Esau was the kind of guy you'd see in line opening day of Cabela's, Jacob was the kind of guy you wouldn't see in line anywhere because he never got out of the house. He was a quiet man, dwelling in tents, the opposite of his brother. And so uh, the setting we're at this morning, uh, here's, here's the scene. Jacob, younger brother, doing what he does best, man. He is cooking. You better believe he... If he doesn't get out much, he's probably a really good cook. So he's cooking like a non-GMO, uh, low-sodium, grass-fed, farm-fresh stew. And it smells delicious. The whole tent is just reeking of this. And it's leaking out you know, into the open field. And Esau is coming back in a dangerous condition. And I don't think there's anything scarier than a grown man who's starving. Uh, that's why my wife carries lots of snacks in her purse. Occasionally, there'll be things that hit me in the head, like a, you know, a cheese stick or something. But... Esau comes back into the, the tent and he's hangry. He is hungry and he is angry. He was out in the field. I guess he maybe was hunting or working the ground, but didn't come back with any food. He comes back starving and exhausted. And he does what any older brother does. And he says this, and Esau said to Jacob, his younger brother, it's verse 30, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was Edom. And so... Esau here does what uh, any old starving brother does. Is he, he, he walks in and he just sits down and, and starts making demands to his younger brother and says, hey, give me some of that stew. And see, here's the thing. Esau doesn't strike me as the older brother who says, you know, hey, Jacob, I, I love you, man. Like, I, I, I know you're probably cooking that for you and, and mom, but if it wouldn't be too much to ask, could I just have a little bit of that stew? Could you share it with me? I'm no, Esau is definitely not that kind of older brother. Esau comes in, starts making demands. Yo, give me some of that red stew. And I think it's imperative for us to put ourselves in the younger brother's shoes, to put ourselves, uh, uh, to imagine for a second what it would be like to be Jacob growing up under the hairy shadow of Esau. <laughs> like, like, seriously, like, what would that be like? Esau, man's man, he's coming back, you know, a, a deer over his shoulder, maybe like a lion over his other shoulder, like walking in, throwing it down. And his dad's like, oh, my, my, my son, my firstborn son, you're going to get the, the birthright. I love you. I eat of your game. Like he gets all the attention from his dad, gets all the attention from everyone else. Um, 
What do you think that would be like? You think I, this, the, the text doesn't say here, scripture doesn't say, but I, but, but I don't think it's too much to, to imagine and say, you know, maybe Jacob was, was wrestling with some resentment, some bitterness. Maybe he was harboring some resentment against his brother uh, and, and against his father for showing favoritism. And so Esau walks in starving because he smells lunch. And Esau, and Jacob, you know, Jacob's name there means a heel grabber, which is a colloquial way of, in Hebrew, of saying this guy's a deceiver. He's a, he's a manipulator. Esau walks in, he smells lunch, and Jacob smells opportunity. Opportunity. Verse 31. Esau walks in, let me eat some of that red stew. I'm exhausted. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. Now that's insane. That's crazy. And because this was 4,000 years ago, we don't really know the, 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 the insanity of what he's saying there. But all that time that Jacob is dwelling in tents has paid off um, because I think he just finished reading Art of the Deal. And he, he, he offers an insane counteroffer, insane counteroffer. And you can see a sense of urgency here, uh, like any good salesman knows, like now. There, he knows that this is just a moment and, and, and that, that Esau is going to change his mind. He says, sell me this now. And the, here's the fine print. Here's the fine print of Jacob's offer. This is a very small print in the contract he, he's, he's pretty much writing to his brother Esau. A birthright that Esau had at this moment entailed three things. It was money, power, and blessing. So in ancient Near Eastern culture, when you were the oldest son and you had the birthright, you had, a, a, you had a, a money. So when, the, when your father passed away, you got a double portion of the inheritance. So that didn't just mean a ton of money, but it meant for Esau, it meant twice as much as Jacob was going to get. Twice as much as anyone else was going to get in the family. In addition to that, it meant power. It meant authority. He basically took his father Isaac's spot once Isaac was to pass away. He was going to be the authority, the sovereign over that family. It wasn't a democracy. He was calling the shots. He was the patriarch. He was, he was a lord over that family. So money, power, and lastly, and most importantly, blessing. Blessing through that birthright. These covenant promises that were given to his grandfather, Abraham pass to Isaac, and we're going to pass to Esau. That, yo, like his legacy for the rest of human history, for the rest of human history, God was going to reveal himself to humanity in his word as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. So that through Esau, he was going to have 12 kids that become 12 tribes that were going to become the nation of Israel. And through that nation of Israel, Christ was going to come. And nations upon nations upon nations, people sitting in Alexandria, Virginia in 2017 were going to be blessed by that. That's where we're at. That, that's in the fine print. Okay? Sell me your birthright now. And look at Esau's response in the next verse, uh, uh, 32. And Esau said, I'm not that stupid, Jacob. You're crazy. No one would ever be dumb enough to trade their birthright for a bowl of soup. Give me some of that red stuff before I punch you in the face. Um, that's the ESV. Is that what it says up there? No. Sadly, that's not what Esau said. This is what Esau, this is what Esau said. Look at this. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? True or false? Was, was, uh, was Esau about to die? No. Walked in there on his own strength. Isaac didn't come from the field dragging him in. Uh, he didn't crawl in, like army crawl in, because he couldn't walk. 
he walked in and, and he says something insane. But here's the deal. Appetites distort reality. He says something crazy like, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? What? Esau, what use is a birthright to you? Are you crazy? Are you crazy? Of what use is a birthright? Bro, that's your legacy. That's your lineage. That is everything. That's your family. Of what use? Oh, you're, you're talking crazy talk right now. Of what use is a birthright? And, and, and here's the scariest reality of this text is uh, we look at Esau and we ask this question. Who would ever be stupid enough? Who, who would ever be crazy enough to trade everything, to trade their legacy for lunch? Who, who would do that? And the answer is you and I might. The answer is people do it all the time. And the truth is, I believe that apart from the grace of God in your life, you and I are capable of anything. You and I are capable of anything. And see, these, these appetites that we have, and a lot of us has a, have a predisposition towards appetites. It could be money, power, it could be sex, it could just be shoes. I mean, you know, whatever your, your predisposition is to, to acquire more stuff or get more recognition or whatever, these appetites that we have can distort reality and they can literally change the course of our lives. These appetites can literally change the direction of your life and not just your life, your family's life, your wife's life, your kid's life, your grandkids' life, nations. That's what's at stake here. And what's wild here is these appetites distort reality. We see Esau, we see Esau talking crazy. Where he's saying, he's saying essentially this, I want this red stew so bad, so bad. See, it distorts reality that I'm willing to sacrifice my birthright, my future, my family's future. And, and the sad part about that is, is we don't say, we don't say that, we don't say what use is my birthright, but we're, when we're overwhelmed by a craving, by a lust, by a passion, by a desire, by an appetite, we say crazy things like, yeah, what, what use is my, my family to me? What, what use are my kids to me and their, and their health and their kids? What use is my legacy? I want this momentary pleasure more than I want a lifetime of legacy, of faithfulness to my family and to my, my bride and to my kids. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And so uh, freshman year of college, I got uh, hoodwinked into house sitting for a family. They were winter break, uh, and I was a, a broke uh, college student looking to get some extra cash. And so I was house sitting and dog sitting for this family. And the first, I show up while they're still, you know, getting ready to go to the airport. And they're like, oh, hey, by the way, my buddy tells me this, my younger brother's python escaped from its cage. It's somewhere in the house. Good luck. See you in a week. So I just realized, oh, in the fine print, I went from dog sitting and house sitting to snake sitting. And I wasn't really snake sitting because I had no idea where the snake was. So I had to stay there the whole week, not knowing where this, this snake was. And so it's crazy, right? Crazy. And, and, and here's the reason I share that is, um, one, I'm not a big like snake guy. Um, I think it's biblical. I mean, and so, but here's the deal. 
Here's the deal. If you own, like, if you own pythons, like, we'll pray for you. Like, that just doesn't make, I, like, God bless your heart. I, this, you know, to each his own. Like, I'm kind of a dog guy, but I guess if you're into pythons, that's great. But, but this, is, this is what I'm getting at here. This is what I'm getting at here. How, to me, to me I, I think through things way too much. I dwell in tents more than I'm in the field, and that probably should. Uh, but uh, you invite, you invite a, a, a cute little python into your house, and you're like, oh, this is adorable. It, it eats little crickets. It eats little mice. Oh, it's just so cute. It's manageable. But, but the more you feed it, the more it grows, right? And that bad boy, that python, has the ability, according to Google, to grow to... <laughs> to 30 feet and about 400 pounds. The more you feed it, the more it wants, and it's always, it's always asking for more food. I think you guys know exactly where I'm going with this illustration. See, I think the sad part is there's some of us here, there's some of us here who, who have an appetite, and, and, and it has not been checked at all. And what's once started out as, as cute, and manageable, we've continued to fed and give in and fed and give in. And next thing you know, that appetite, which was once, once cute and manageable, has turned into a 400-foot or pound, 30-foot python, listen, that is completely outside of your control. Completely outside of your control. And, and just as dangerous as that is wandering in your house, a python that's, that's 400 feet, it is your appetite wandering unchecked in your house for the sake of your family and your legacy as well. That's the truth. That's the truth. And here's what I'm getting at. I'm getting kind of off my notes here. But in this small moment in time, we see, we see, man, someone's life changed forever. And you and I are capable of that. But what I also knew, know to be true is there's a flip side to that coin. And the reason I'm up here preaching today is because I believe this to be true as well. That in this small moment of time, in just 40 minutes, that God can show up in power and literally change the direction of your life. No matter what appetite you're feeding, where, what you've done in the past, whether you've sold a birthright, stolen a birthright, given into an appetite that is now completely outside of your control, right now, today, can be the day where God forever changes the course of your life. That is the truth. That is the truth. That is the gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. May today not be an exercise in futility. Today could be the day, my friends, to repent, to surrender, to surrender that appetite. And finally, for the first time in your life, realize that, God, this is totally outside of my control. Jesus, I need you. I need you. The, the, uh, the narrative continues. 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. And this, I think, is, is one of the most tragic verse in all of scripture. So he swore to him and he sold his, his birthright, his legacy to Jacob. Then Jacob and Esau got what he wanted. And, and, and Jacob gave Esau bread. I guess he threw in bread as well to kind of like, that wasn't part of the deal, but he felt bad. So he threw in some bread, gave him bread and lentil stew. And listen to this. He ate, drank, rose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. See, my friends, we know this to be true. One of the scariest and most tragic moments in your life is when you get what you're ultimately craving, what you're ultimately desiring, and you realize it is a dead-end street. 
you realize, man, it promised you everything and it gave you nothing, nothing but regret. And see, the scary part, what we learn in Romans 1 is that, man, God has created us with these, with these appetites and these appetites should drive us to him, to delight, to taste and see that God is good. And when we worship the created over the creator, God, said, God says, if that's really what you want over me, if you really want to play in that mud puddle when you have an ocean of grace and hope and peace and love in me, if that's really what you want, God's, God's going to cut the leash and say, you can have it. If you really want that bowl of soup, that's, that's the scary part of this reality. Esau got exactly what his heart was chasing. And we learn later that he realized that was the uh, biggest mistake of his life. Traded the ultimate for the immediate, traded everything for nothing. And that small sliver, that moment in his life, changed everything for him. A moment, a meal. And so there's some lessons for us here today. Our series is called Lessons in Faith and Grace. And so when we look at uh, Esau, I think uh, the, the number one lesson that we draw from this is, uh, is appetite. Is appetite. What, what's, your, what's your bowl of soup? For each and every one of us, it could be different. But, but what is that, man, that passion, that desire that's waging war? We talk, talk about this in games. It's waging war against your soul. And, and listen, it has the ability to change the course of your life. That should cause us to wake up. That should cause us to rethink our future and what we're living for. These appetites have the power to change our legacies, to affect not just us, not just our marriage, but affect our kids and our grandkids to fight. Even secular psychologists say our actions, our legacies go to five generations, five generations. And so there's three truths about appetites. One, God created these appetites, but sin distorted them. But some of these appetites that we, that we crave uh, are, are, are good, but we just seek them in the wrong places. Like I have, when I got my new iPhone 6, I used it as a phone, right? Not as a hockey puck. Like if I took my brand new phone and tried to, you know, like play hockey with that, that's not the proper use. I was going to destroy my phone, have a big bill or whatever. That's not the use. So there's certain appetites that God intended for us, but we take them out of context and we reap Destruction. Secondly, these appetites, listen, this is truth. They're never fully and finally satisfied. Appetites never declare a truce until you're dead. And for some of those appetites in your life, until you're like three days dead. They're not going anywhere anytime soon, but here's what I know to be true. The more you feed an appetite, the more it's going to grow and have control of your life. But, but the more through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the more you, you put to death that sin, it's called mortification, and you put on Jesus Christ, I believe it's called vivification. We can check that later or edit that out if that's true. But mortification is putting sin to death. But it's not just that. It's not just, hey, hey, let's stop feeding this appetite. But it is feasting. It is delighting in Jesus Christ. Saying, Lord, I don't want this to be my ultimate desire. I want you to be my ultimate desire. And, and, and that, my friend is the only power you're going to have over your appetite is when you replace that appetite with a hunger, with a thirst to know God. And then lastly, these appetites always whisper now, never later. They're always talking about the immediate, not the forever. Not the forever. I think it's imperative for us this morning to
to, to, to maybe get some time alone and think about legacy, think about future. Think about, hey, if there's some unchecked things in my life, some appetites, where do, if I unpack this a couple years down the road, where could this road lead me? And this is what it says in Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Then we're going to look at uh, two other uh, lessons. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17 talks about Esau. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthrights for a single meal. For you know that afterward, and this is so sad, that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, the blessing, remember, that he forfeited, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So what the New Testament teaches us is that Esau regretted his mistake, and he sought to change the past, weeping with tears. He would think about that moment, think about that meal, and realize what he forfeited over that. And the scary reality is that you, you can't change the past. You can't change the past. But here's what I know to be true, and we're going to talk about this in our, in our third lesson I'm going to conclude with, but there's certain things in your past you can't change, but you better believe you can bring them to the foot of the cross. You can bring them to the foot of the cross. And we're gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get, getting ahead of myself, but we'll look at that in more detail, my third point. Secondly, I think this passage, if we, so that's the lesson I think we gleaned from Esau here. I think the second thing we learned from Jacob here, remember there's a second character in this, uh, this narrative, Jacob, a wheeler and dealer, a manipulator, who, 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 who played off of his brother's need and stole his birthright from him. So what do we learn from that? Some good sales practices or, or whatnot? No, I think, this is, I think this is what we learn. I think we learn about identity. What's your identity? And this, uh, this is what the Lord kind of put on my heart. I don't know if this necessarily, I don't want to steal a sermon in a couple weeks, so I'm not going to unpack this uh, in full detail. But uh, here's the deal. From birth, if, if you remember last week's sermon, Jacob was given this, this name, uh, heel grabber. So it's a play on words, Jacob. And it literally means deceiver, manipulator, overreacher, because apparently he was grabbing his, the, his brother's heel, Esau, as he was out of the room. He wanted to, to get ahead. So from birth, he's called Jacob, and he knows the story. Parents repeated it growing up, all this stuff. And he's like, ah, oh, I'm a deceiver, I'm a manipulator. Fast forward, the text says when they're grown up, so when they're grown men, it's no surprise to me. Listen, it's no surprise to me. Jacob is doing exactly exactly uh, that. He's living and acting out of the identity that he believes to be true about him. Right? And this is what I know to be true. We all tend to live out of the name we most believe to be true about us. Like how we view ourselves, how we identify ourselves is literally how we behave, how we function. And so my friends today... Where do you go for identity? Is your identity wrapped up in, in what you do? Is your identity wrapped up in, in, in your appetites? Do you define yourself by your appetites? And here's today, man, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you are in Christ, your identity is not what you do. It's about what's been done for you. See, when God calls you, he gives you a new name, a new identity, so you know are longer defined by your past successes or your past failures. 
or by your appetites. You're defined as in Christ. Look at Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Did you guys catch that? That's what we're talking about identity here. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is your identity. Not what you do, being a good parent or a hard worker or, 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 or an American or, or whatever. All those are shaky foundations. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are saying, I am in Christ. My identity is wrapped up in this, in that I now am a son. I now am a daughter. I have been adopted into God's family, royal family. You learn this in First Peter. Uh, you are, the church is a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Throughout the New Testament, the church isn't described as sinners. They're described as saints. As saints. My friends, you're in the presence of those in Christ Jesus today, in the presence of royalty. And we believe that about ourselves. That we are beloved sons and daughters of the King. Man, it changes everything. Yeah, you might wrestle with certain appetites. That's not your identity. That's not your identity anymore. You are in Christ. And lastly, I'll conclude with this third point. As we learn here a lesson about God's sovereign grace. We learned a lesson about Esau. We learned a lesson about Jacob. We learned a lesson about God's sovereign grace. Because here's the deal. What we learned throughout this narrative, and we're going to unpack this, is that God uses messy people for his divine purposes. That he chose someone that not many people would choose. A quiet guy dwelling in tents. Everyone, including Isaac, would have chosen Esau all day for this legacy, for this covenant promise to continue. But God chose what is weak to, to shame the wise, to shame the strong. And, and he used, in his sovereign grace, he used Jacob's sin, his messiness, his mistakes to, to literally continue his covenant promise to Abraham. And that you and I are blessed by his faithfulness to Jacob. So much so that uh, further on in the story, when we're talking about identity, Jacob has an encounter with God. And God asks him, Jacob, what's your name? And for the first time in his life, Jacob's honest. And he says, my name is Jacob. And that's a confession there, saying, I'm a deceiver. I'm a manipulator. And God says, hey, guess what? That's not your name anymore. Your name's Israel. You're going to be a father of a great nation. This is Jacob. This is what God did through Jacob. So I don't care, I don't care where you're at this morning. If God can take Jacob and make him a father of a great nation, Israel, I don't care where you're at this morning. If you sold her birthright or stolen a birthright, there's nothing that 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 God can't and will not do through you if you're if you're simply willing to surrender your will to him. And so whether you've uh, stolen or a birthright or sold a birthright, here's what I know to be true. There's hope. There's peace, there's forgiveness for you in Christ Jesus. As long as there is breath in your lungs, there is hope. There is hope. And so this is a heavy sermon, a heavy-hitting sermon. We got a lot to, to think about, myself included, here. But, man, may we, not, may we not miss grace. May we not miss the gospel. And I'm going to end with this quote, and then we'll, we'll pray. This is by uh, Roy, uh, Roy Hessian. I, don't, I have no idea if that's how you say his last name, so sorry if I put your, your name 
Um, it's from a book, We Would See Jesus. But this is what he has to say about hope and forgiveness found in Christ Jesus. Please listen. <clears throat> However, not only has the truth about ourselves come by Jesus Christ, but also the truth about God and his love towards us. Left to ourselves, our guilty consciences only tell us that God is against us, that he is the God with a big stick. We see him only as the one who sets the moral standards for us, most of them impossibly high, and therefore who cannot but censure us when we fail. Listen, there is nothing to draw us to a God like that. But the cross of the Lord Jesus gives the lie to all this and shows us God as he really is. We see him not charging us with our sins as we would have thought, but charging them to his son for our sakes. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses onto them. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Listen, what we thought was the big stick was really his outstretched arm of love beckoning us back to himself in the face of of Jesus Christ marred for us, we see that God is not against the sinner before him, that he is not his enemy, but his friend, that in Christ he has not set new and unattainable standards. This is what I'm getting at. Listen, if you haven't heard anything I've said this morning, please listen to this, that, that in Christ he has not set new and unattainable standards, but has come to offer forgiveness, peace, and new life to those who have fallen down on every standard there is. So if you're here today and, and you're feeling the guilt and the regret and the condemnation of certain mistakes, you're, you're, in good, you're in good company. You're in good company because there's hope for you. There's grace for you. And that's exactly who God is. Uh, can, can bring hope and peace and forgiveness to her, those who have fallen down on every standard there is. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to surrender your life to Jesus. It's not you're some good moral person, but you finally have recognized your desperate need for life that only Christ can give you. So with that said, uh, let's pray, and then we'll uh, celebrate with communion. Heavenly Father, wow, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your, your word, how it exhorts us, it it teaches us and it warns us, Lord, of the danger of these appetites. How in just a tiny sliver of our lives can literally change everything. Can change everything, Lord. But the flip side to that coin, Lord, is the far greater hope that, yes, in a small sliver of time like this morning, that you can change our lives. You can change legacies. You can change destinies. You can change futures. You can change families. Father, so Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do that this morning? Would you tear down those walls that, that we have built up, these guards against you coming into the dark recesses of our souls and bringing certain appetites to light? Would today be the day of salvation and would today be the day of freedom for people, Lord? Where people would start carrying burdens they were never meant to carry. Would they bring them to your feet, Jesus? And finally, surrender and experience the life-giving life -giving freedom that comes when we finally surrender everything to you. So Spirit, come and do what only you can do. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.